All right, beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. And I, I didn't put on your handout at the top, I should have. It's, we're going to look tonight at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Um, we're not going to look at the whole chapter. There's too much there. So let's go ahead and let's read these words together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into um, this text and kind of have an introduction, really, to the rest of Isaiah. So let's look at it. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, and lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. Let's pray together. What a beautiful passage. Father, what what a beautiful, what a glorious text this is. What a comforting, encouraging, soul-strengthening text this is. Father, what... Who and what are we that you would speak not only to your remnant in the Babylonian exile, but your people today in modern day Babylon with words like this? Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you, Lord God, for your sovereign determination and your irresistible will to Redeem for yourself a people for your own possession. Thank you, Lord, that it is guaranteed by the unbreakable certainty and authority of your holy word. And thank you, Father, that it is accomplished through your chosen servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we Engage these words tonight as we meet with you, as you speak to us through them, Father, that our souls will be strengthened and we would be encouraged. And Father, we would be yet again reassured and reminded and encouraged that, Father, your purposes, they come to pass because your word does not return to you void. So, Thank you for this time tonight. Please bless us as we look into your word together 
and make your presence with us sweet, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight, beloved, we're going to embark on a study of the final 27 chapters of this prophecy of Isaiah. And the tone and the content of Isaiah's prophecy takes a marked turn beginning tonight. Broadly speaking, you know, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have primarily been focused on past and uh, present events, right? On Isaiah preaching to his contemporaries with, you know, mixed effect, right? With, with limited and, and with mixed effect. You'll remember his commission, right, that God gave to him back in chapter 6. And if you don't remember it, I'll read it to you. This is what he said. The Lord said to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, Isaiah said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The calling of Isaiah was to preach to the nation of Judah, and to call them to account for their sins. And to call them to repentance and to faith in the Lord yet again. And as we have seen, it was with mixed effect. While there were some bright spots in general, Isaiah's preaching in the first 39 chapters carries with it a strong tone of warning and of judgment. A record of sin and its consequences. A record of deafened ears and unfeeling hearts. Right Now, of course... You know, Isaiah gathers to himself a remnant that does trust in God and recognizes Isaiah as his prophet. But the general populace demonstrates no real consistency in their faith, right? No real and true and lasting repentance. Instead, they're continually drawn back to idolatry, continually drawn back to their old ways. And we remember we we saw how these first 39 chapters came to a climax with the record of Isaiah confronting Hezekiah prophesying the eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the consequent exile of the Jews into Babylon, and then Hezekiah's rather callous and uncaring and selfish response that, you know, at least there will be peace and security in my days, right? He's a sorry excuse for a king. But when we come to chapter 40, the predominant tone is transformed in an instant. It goes from being this message of warning and judgment and, and sin and, and all of that. It becomes all of a sudden a tone of comfort and of divine intervention and blessing. A tone of restoration and renewal, of triumph and eternal joy. In fact, here's the deal. The focus of Isaiah 40 and the following chapters is not Isaiah's contemporaries. It's not, it's not the, those that lived in the days of Hezekiah, but those who some 150 to 170 years in the future, those Jews who would suffer Babylonian captivity through a series of political and military confrontations beginning in 605 B.C. and then in 598 B.C. and then finally the the, the great siege of 587 B.C. when Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. These words are written 
to the future Jewish captives in Babylon. They're written to, to encourage them to endure, promising them that Yahweh has not forgotten them, that He will act to deliver them, that, that, you know, that they're being encouraged to, to return to the promised land when they're freed from captivity. He even calls by name the instrument that God would use to accomplish their release nearly 170 years before He conquers Babylon and releases the Jews to go return and rebuild Jerusalem. He calls Cyrus the Persian by name. Right? Now, ironically, this is one of the reasons that liberal you know, theologians, which are you know, non-theologians, liberal theologians, non-theologians will say, well, there's got to be two Isaiahs. Because the first Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah, and the second Isaiah, you know, he speaks primarily to the people, you know, in the, in the mid-500s B.C., and so therefore, it can't be the same Isaiah because there's no way that he could predict with any accuracy the actual name of the ruler that would release the Jews. <laughs> you know, You know, it's like, how to tell me you're an unbeliever without telling me you're an unbeliever, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's just foolishness, right? These words are awesome. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy in chapters 40 through 66 have a massive and a wide-ranging scope. When we, as we study these words out, we're going to see that not only does it take in the release and the return of a remnant of the Babylonian exiles to Jerusalem and the reconstitution of the nation, and God's renewed favor and blessing to His people that they would once again you know, live in the promised land and worship God in a rebuilt temple. What Isaiah saw as, saw as the beginning of a new age for the nation of Israel. But we'll also see that it ushers in the coming of the true king. The anointed one. The, you know, the, the chosen servant of God who will be the true king and the true shepherd of His people. Right, The Lord Jesus Christ. It will speak to us of His vicarious, sacrificial, and atoning sacrifice. Not just for the sins of Israel, right? But for His elect from every nation. We'll, we'll read here the call to find eternal life and blessing in the grace of God. The establishment of the kingdom in the hearts of God's people. And the ultimate consummation of His eternal kingdom at the end of the age. All of it guaranteed by the word of Yahweh, who cannot be resisted. The one who is far greater than all the idols of, of Babylon. And, and man, is Isaiah going to take an axe to those guys in the next few chapters, right? But he who is far above and who is not fitting to be compared to the worthless idols of man. These next 27 chapters are glorious. And, and while they're written first to the exiles in Babylon, listen, these words, beloved, are a source of comfort and strength and encouragement and a call to faithfulness to all of us who live as exiles in this world, in contemporary Babylon, right? Looking to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what we've got in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11 is really kind of a broad introduction. It's a broad overview in four sections of the themes that are going to be developed in the rest of the book. In fact, in a lot of ways, this, these first 11 verses depict... Um, sort of a second commissioning of Isaiah to this new emphasis in his ministry. And there's a lot of comparison and contrast, for instance, with Isaiah's initial calling in Isaiah 6 um, to the prophetic ministry, okay? And so it kind of leads to us looking at this as a, a second commissioning of Isaiah to this new um, ministry of encouragement, if you will, right? And so 
Think about it. We have God speaking from His throne in this text. That's the idea here in the first two verses. He's speaking from His throne. You know, we have various unnamed voices that are analogous to the voices of the seraphim in chapter 6. We've got Isaiah responding, you know, what shall I cry? As opposed to his question in chapter 6 of how long do I have to preach this, right? And, and, and there's a contrast in the purpose, right? His preaching, again, according to chapter 6, was to be until all the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land was a desolate waste and God removes his people, the Lord removes his people far away. But now, now it's to be for the comfort of the future exiles and for the return and the restoration of, of a remnant. So this is a new phase in the ministry of Isaiah. A new focus for this prophet of Yahweh. And, and let me just say a little something about that. A little historical note here, okay? Nearly every theologian agrees that the public ministry of Isaiah ended in 701 B.C. Okay, it ended when Sennacherib and his army were destroyed. And, you know, um, or Sennacherib's army was destroyed and he went back to, 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 uh, to Nineveh. But everybody you know, nearly universally agrees that his public ministry ended with the end of the Assyrian crisis. And so the remaining years of Hezekiah's rule were pretty much relatively uneventful. And Isaiah remained then sort of in the background, teaching and, and training his disciples and the faithful remnant within Judah that had received his message, you know. But when Manasseh came to power, when he came to soul rule, when Hezekiah died, and he came to sole rule and becoming the sole monarch of Judah. Manasseh quickly moved to unravel all of the religious reforms that Hezekiah instituted. Or instituted. In fact, we read in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 2 through 6, these words. Just listen to this. He said, Scripture says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He became an astrologer. Okay, And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. He brought other gods before God's face, right? Other lowercase g, gods, before the face of God. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Sounds like a lot of the elites in our own day, doesn't it? But not only that, Manasseh fiercely repressed the faithful preaching of the Word of God. And the leaders of Judah refused to listen to the Word of God at all. In fact, he put many of the preachers to death and many of the faithful to death. Again, 2 Kings chapter 21 um, records, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, Manasseh would be one of the main catalysts leading to the ultimate destruction of, destruction of Judah in Jerusalem. 
In verses 11 and 12 of, again, 2 Kings 21, we read, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Early church tradition has it that Isaiah died as a martyr actually during the reign of Manasseh, who, according to you know, tradition, had him sawn in two. And there could very well be an echo of that in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. When we read of the heroes of the faith, you know, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Whether that tradition is true or not, at any rate, it was during this time, okay? It was during the time of Manasseh's reign that God commissioned Isaiah to a ministry of writing for the sake of these future exiles in order that they might be comforted and encouraged and, and, and he writes these words that his disciples would cherish and that, he would preserve, that they would preserve in these dark days ahead until Israel was at last ready to hear and receive them. And it would be some 150 years in the future. Okay? And they've been preserved for us, praise God, who are in modern day Babylon. So with that as our background, I just want to take a brief look at this overview in verses 1 through 11. And again, all of these themes are going to be worked out tremendously in the next 27 chapters. But I want us to see, again, it's presented to us in four sections. In the first section, the first thing that I want us to see is this word of comfort. Okay, Read verses 1 and 2 with me again. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, there are several things I want us to see in these first two verses. There's a lot here. First thing I want us to notice is this, is that God is speaking to the remnant, and He refers to Himself as your God, okay? He calls Himself your God or my God, or, you know. And I want you to notice that that is a great change from what we have seen previously, Right? where God distanced himself from, from the, the, the nation of Judah. God is saying to the exiles, in essence, look, I am still your God. The covenant that I made with your fathers and with you is still in effect. There will still be fruit of the covenant that I made with your fathers. God has out a plan for his people, and he hasn't cast them off forever. Okay, So that's the first thing. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then the command to comfort my people in Hebrew, we need to understand that's really intense. It's very intensive and it's very powerful. In other words, the idea is, you know, these people that are hearing this are to comfort and console, to encourage and uplift, and to do it continuously and powerfully. In fact, they're to labor really hard at bringing comfort and binding up God's people. They're to make it their mission. To, to lift them up and strengthen them and undergird them and encourage them, right? Like, this is not like a, a, a haphazard ministry to which they are being called. This is vitally, vitally important, okay? Now, the verb here is plural. So, 
In other words, God is speaking to a host of unnamed people here. We don't know who exactly God is referencing here. It could be the angels, you know, who deliver, you know, the words to Isaiah to speak, or it could be to Isaiah and to his disciples and to the, the, the faithful preachers and teachers that would be raised up during the exile to proclaim, you know, the words that God revealed to Isaiah. But the, but, but the idea here is that the people of God, Those who are exiles in Babylon are to hear repeated and intense words of comfort from all who serve as a mouthpiece of the Lord. God's message is about comfort for God's people. And it's not empty words. And we see that because of what the comfort is based upon. Notice he says here, the messengers are to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That's a a Hebrew idiom that means to speak to the heart. Okay, not not that they don't also speak to the mind, but the idea is that it's to penetrate more than just the knowledge of the people. It is to go to their hearts. It's to go to their hearts in a in a gentle, in a kind, in a in a in a comforting and consoling kind of way. In other words, there is speak to them words of love and encouragement that they might believe the testimony of God. And the testimony of God is this: her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, what does that mean? Well, for God's people, for His remnant, okay? Her warfare, or another way to phrase this is her hard service. Her hard indentured service to the Babylonians has finally come to an end. It's over. It's over. In fact, it's going to be made evident because the Babylons are going to be, the Babylonians mean are going to be reduced powerfully by the hand of God, right? But why is it that their hardship has come to an end? It's this, it's this reason. Her iniquity and her sin are pardoned. Now the big question is how can that be, right? Like we know that by our works we can't make an atonement for our sin. We know that by what we do we can't, you know, satisfy the justice and the judgment of God. So how could they, you know, how could they be pardoned? How, how, how could their sin be atoned for? And the fact of the matter is that, there, is that there's far more to this announcement of pardon than first meets the eye. There's a mystery here, right? There's a mystery here that will not be explained fully until chapter, anybody want want to take a guess? 53, right? But for now, the simple announcement is just allowed to stand alone in all of its stark and bold splendor. You're forgiven. Your sin has been paid for. Your hard labor is over. And then he announces the heavy discipline that you have endured is no more. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, what does that mean? Because at first, you know, at first blush, it seems like, well, God has really done a number on them. You know, he's really, he's, he's heaped it up on them. He's poured out double on them what they deserve. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. Okay. In fact, the Hebrew word double is a word that means to fold over. It means to like take a piece of paper, for instance, and to fold it in half so that each half mirrors the other. Right. In other words, What God is saying is that they have received His discipline in exact proportion to their sin. No more and no less. There's an exact correspondence between the sin that they have committed 
and the discipline that God has imposed. They match one another. God had cast them off for a time because of their breaking of the covenant. And now he's going to bring them back to him. And so whatever might lie ahead for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, God's ultimate purpose for them is not destruction, but redemption. It's not death, it's life. And then Yahweh gives them a word of his sovereign determination and his unstoppable might. This is cool. We read in verses 3-5 through these words. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this is cool, because the focus here, this section has like a a two-fold focus. First, on the surface... We're told here that every possible impediment, every possible obstacle to God moving in His grace and His mercy towards His remnant will be completely overcome. And the picture behind that is this. Whenever a king was making his royal entrance, when he was making, you know, his his royal roundabout visits to, you know, the, the outskirts of his kingdom, every effort and every expense would be made in order to make his journey a smooth one. That was the idea, right? And so what's being said here in essence is this. Nothing is going to impede what God is doing. Nothing can possibly stand in his way. Nothing can obstruct his his intention and his determination to bring blessing to his people. It is a declaration of sovereign purpose and irresistible power on behalf of of God, okay? So, there, you know, the, the, the way is going to be made and there will be no restraining the move of God, right? But there's a second focus to this word, these words. And we see them really come into, into clarity, for instance, in the ministry of John the Baptist to whom these words are applied in the New Testament, right? The description is, is a word picture of the preparation that must take place in the human heart, right? And you remember the kinds of things that that John the Baptist preached, right? Repentance, expectancy, humility, an earnest desire to behold the Lord, right? Now we know that's a work of God's grace in every heart, that you don't just stir that up on your own, right? But the idea is that there needs to be a preparation of the heart, and God will do it. God will come to his people, to a prepared people. And he cannot be resisted. He cannot be deterred. He'll come to his remnant in the barren waste of Babylon, right? And he'll take them to himself and he'll lead them to Jerusalem, the holy city. And his glory in doing that will be revealed. You know, not only to the Jewish remnant, but he says here to all flesh. And the idea here is to people of all nationality and ethnicity who have their hearts you know, prepared to perceive His majesty and His glory. God was going to appear, acting for His people. And by that acting, He would manifest His glory to the whole world. And all flesh would marvel. They would marvel at His liberating the Israelites and bringing them back into their land. 
Moreover, they would, they would stand amazed at His saving a sinful remnant through the coming of His chosen servant. And even more than that, even more impressive, would be the display of His glory that would accompany the Messiah's consummation of the kingdom. And we'll see all of that worked out in Isaiah 40-66. through 66. But there's a note that's struck here. A chord that, that is struck here that will recur more and more clearly as the book moves forward towards its climax. And it's this. That the Lord is a missionary God. And that what He does for His people, He does not only for their sake alone, but so that all may see God's glory. The revelation of His glory, moreover, is certain because it's an announcement from the mouth of Yahweh Almighty. These words come from His mouth. And that leads us to the third main theme. That of the supremacy of the Word of God. Look at it. Verses 6-8. through Voices cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Right? Isaiah is now putting himself in the midst of this. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. I want you to think about why this is such an important encouragement, right? To the, to the exiles in Babylon that were under the yoke of their oppressors and had been for a very long time, it must have seemed to them like the iron grip of, of Babylon was too great to ever be broken, right? But we see here that appearances are not reality, right? Appearances are not reality. Mankind may seem great. He may seem powerful. He may seem permanent. He may seem glorious and awesome, but in reality, mankind is like grass. He's like grass, like the, flower, the beauty of a flower. His will and His power, all of His might is but a shadow in the sun of God's power and the supremacy of His Word. The Word of God and His decree, His command, His authority stands forever. When God speaks, when His breath goes forth, the will and the words of man Their very lives are revealed to be what they truly are, frail and passing, like a whisper in the wind. God's word thunders from his throne. It's powerful above all else, right? Job 35, 7 says, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Amen. Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Isaiah will say later in 55, verse 11, So shall my word be. God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. David testifies of the supremacy of the Word of God. In Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, when he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which is, the, which is produced properly produced by the Word of God, is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. 
in keeping them, there is great reward. God stands forever. His word stands forever. It doesn't decay. It doesn't fade away like we do. It stands to eternity. And the idea that we should get from this, the understanding we should take is that the person who cannot rest, his or her whole weight on the word of God, the one who refuses to hear and believe the word of God can never know divine peace because peace can be found nowhere else than in a trusting relationship to God who reveals himself through his word. Reliance on the word of God is not fatalistic. It's not superstitious. It's not a trust in something impersonal and stupid like the stars or a good luck charm or crystals or whatever. Gretz showed me this week that there is actually some idiot that came out with a Christian Ouija board. Yeah, I'm not kidding you. Find God's word through your Christian Ouija. Yeah, guaranteed to connect you only to the Holy Spirit. That's like saying, I want to go to hell and I don't want to wait in line. Man, it's a trust in a person who's committed himself to us, right? And it has all the resources necessary to accomplish what he proclaims. God's word's unchanging. It's reliable, just like he is. In contrast to the frailty and the fleeting glory of man, the word of our God endures forever. And then we turn to the last word. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. And it's a word about God's chosen servant. I love this. Look at, look at verses 9 through 11. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now I want to point something out here because there's some textual variance um, at the very beginning of, 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 of this text, of, this, of this, these few verses. There are two ways that you can translate the phrases, O Zion, herald of good news, and O Jerusalem, herald of good news. You can translate it that way like the ESV does primarily, or you can translate it as it's found in the footnote in the ESV. If you look at it really quickly, it says, O herald of good news to Zion and O herald of good news to Jerusalem. Either one of them is acceptable. So the question is, which one's right? Well, I actually take the variant reading, the second reading, which is, this, you know, again, acceptable. I take the alternate reading to be the correct one. And here's why. It's in keeping with the theme of these 11 verses, right? These 11 verses are, are words to messengers to stand up and, and proclaim, right? And, and, and the idea is, is that proclamation is being made to the exiles, to those who are not yet a reconstituted Zion and Jerusalem. And so I see this as being a continuation of the theme that's been established in verses 1 through 8. You can take either one of them. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't change very much at all, you know, the heart of it. Um, I'm not going to, you know, go to a duel with, with swords with you or with knives with you over this, you know, and who's right, me or you, and, and draw blood. I'm not doing that, right? But context, I think, clearly says 
Yeah, the, the, the second reading is the better one. But here's the point. Because the Word of God stands forever, and because God's Word can't return to Him void, these messengers are to stand on the mountain and to speak with confidence and certainty, to speak without fear, to declare as if what they are proclaiming has already come to pass, right? Because in God's mind, it has, right? In God's mind, it has. And the message is this. The message to them is, behold your God. Look and see. There is your God. He's coming with might and power. There he is. And his arm will rule for him. His arm is who? The Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see in Isaiah 52. And he will come, right, with the strength of a warrior. No enemy will be able to stand before his power. He comes as a shepherd who will lovingly care for his people. None of them will be left behind. And he comes with rewards for them, for his people, and recompense for his enemies, such that the sufferings of the exile will vanish like a forgotten dream. Now clearly, we can see here that Isaiah conflates aspects of the first and the second coming of Christ in these words, right? But the message is clear. God's coming for his people. And his word makes it an undeniable and an absolute certainty. Right? One upon which you can safely ground your entire life. So this entire section of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, serves as sort of a broad preview of everything that's to come in the remainder of these 27 chapters. Right? God's promise of comfort. His sovereign determination to accomplish His purpose and His unstoppable might to do so. The supremacy of His Word as opposed to the varying voices that are in this world and the glory and the, the, the incomparable glory of his, of his chosen servant. And as we look at just these first 11 verses, beloved, we can see the echoes of the gospel, can't we? I mean, they just... They just Stand out to us, don't they? The promise of comfort to us who are sinners and who have rebelled against the goodness and the sovereign authority of God and made ourselves worthy only of judgment. The comfort of hardship ended, ended and pardon for our sins. The promise that God has indeed come for us to lift us out of the wilderness and the bitterness of sin in our present Babylon and to show us His glory. That nothing can stop his sovereign determination and might to lift us out of our misery of sin. That his promise, all of his promises, are rooted in the enduring supremacy of his word and that he has come and will come again in the person of God's anointed servant, God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come and he has delivered us from the power of sin and hell and of death and he will come again to receive us to himself and deliver us from this present Babylon, coming with rewards for those who eagerly await our Savior, and judgment for those who do not fear the Lord. These remaining chapters of Isaiah are superb. They are... I've read one commentator, and, and I would tend to agree with him. He said, chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, he said, are like unto the book of Romans or the book of John to the New Testament. He's like, they are just, they're just wonderful. And man, they are. 
And and these words, verses 1 through 11, they're just merely a preview. And I am looking forward to really studying all of this together. In fact, next week, I, I don't know how much of, of it we'll get through. But I want you to read verses 12 through 31. Um, because they are a testimony to the awesomeness of our God. Right? We throw that word awesome around a lot, very loosely, don't we? That's awesome. This is awesome. That pizza was awesome. You know, that, uh, you know, whatever. That play was awesome. That whatever was awesome. That song's awesome. Right? Only one is truly awesome. Right? And I'm guilty of it too. Don't, I, I, I'm guilty of it too. Only one is truly, truly awesome. And we're going to see that one. Um, man proclaimed in verses 12 through 31 next week. So, um, we've got like five minutes for thoughts or comments or anything. Anybody? Anyone? I'm just excited to be out of the doom of verses, chapters 1 through 39. Aren't you? Like, it's like, whew. Yeah. We made it this far. All right. Now it's good stuff. You know? All right. Let's pray. And, uh, and then we'll break up into some groups to to seek the Lord together. Okay, or, uh, John, will you pray for us, please? Yeah. <clears throat> Dearly Father, you are awesome. You are worthy of our fear, of the worship that we give. You are worthy of our every thought, our every <coughs> <coughs> bit of love. God, you have provided for us. You have given us your Son. Yeah. Lord, so that you could save us and make us your own. God, you have saved us and you've given us new hearts, you've given us new desires. And God, I pray that we would be Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Lord, that there would be nothing that we would do that's outside of the circumference of what you have, you know, commanded. God, so Lord, I pray that we would live our lives In true connection to you, in oneness with you, God, I pray that we would strive for you in, read, in the reading of your word through the daily, daily repentance, all of these things that you've given us so that we can draw closer to you. God, I pray that we would take advantage of them and that we would. Lord, that we would build each other up. Lord, that we would build each other up. We would encourage each other to, to stand firm. Lord, to stand up and be bold. Yeah. We are in a, a fallen world, a, a world that wants nothing to do with you. So, God, I pray that you would cause us to be salt and light in this world. Lord, cause us to be preserved. Cause us to be something that causes others to look at us and thirst for Christ. God, I, pr- I pray that you would just be made known through us in the way that we live. So, God, I thank you for this time. I pray that uh, as we get ready to... Spend time in prayer, God, that we would be praying in alignment with, the, with your will. God, that you would just bend your ear and hear us, Lord, and answer our prayers. God, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for everything you've given. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.